Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Peter Duncan, founder and CEO, and Gary Hargraves, president and COO of MicroSeismic Incorporated. MicroSeismic, as the name implies, is focused on microseismic data collection for monitoring subsurface operations. As a company that has been around for 20 years, they started pre-shale, lived through the shale boom, and are now applying their expertise to subsurface operations in an energy transition world. I'm always, I always enjoy talking with companies like MicroSeismic because of the clear correlation from the incumbent energy space now into the present. So, Peter, Gary, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to MicroSeismic. Gary, let's start with you and then jump to Peter. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Um, so I spend um, my time commuting from Austin into to Houston. So, so I, I listen to the OGGM podcast quite often. So it's, a, it's an honor to be here today. So thank you. And I'm glad you mentioned transition. It's been a major theme in my career, which you know I'll touch on. But um, you know, first, just a little more about me. I'm a Texas native. I grew up in a small town right outside of Houston, Liberty, Texas. Uh, I ended up going to Texas A&M University. Uh, while I was there, I got a degree in information management and operations. And you can kind of think of that as kind of a blend between computer science in business administration and operations. And also while I was there, I took a little bit of time off, almost a year, and I joined the United States Marine Corps Reserves, which tended to be a transition in my career as well. Uh, and then as I entered my professional career, it was right at the kind of the top of the, the boom of the, the dot-com, right in 99. And you know, I spent 23 years from that time working in or for a technology-managed cons consulting company, all right? So, providing technology services to industry. Um, and kind of how that career went was the first 10 years or so, I worked in companies that were retail and consumer packaged goods. I worked in the airlines. And then... The last 10 years, I transitioned over into oil and gas companies and other industrial companies. And as I was going through that transition, you know, I never worked directly for an oil and gas company. 
you know, hard hat boots on the ground other than one little internship uh, in college. But Peter helped changed all that for me um, just a few months ago, right? He and I met at a conference here in Austin and he heard my story and kind of my background. And after a couple of months of Peter and the board vetting me out, we figured out this was going to be a good good opportunity for for really MSI and the changes the company's going through right now and the changes that the energy industry is going through, right? There's a lot of blend between digital solutions, digital capabilities, taking the oil and gas industry and repurposing skill sets, people, process, and technologies to, to, to use those new digital solutions as the energy or as the industry itself transitions into these new energy uh, solutions and environmental services type solutions. So that's kind of my professional background. And then, you know, along the way, I've, I've managed to stay married to my wife for 23 years. We share a passion of for, for live concerts and traveling. And then I've got three very, very A personality teenagers. Um, and with them, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time in youth sports, right? I've coached somewhere between 25 and 30 of their teams um, over the years. Wow. That's a little about me. Thank you for that, Gary. Peter, let's hear your background and then an introduction to MicroSeismic. Surely. Thank you very much, Joe. And again, it's uh, like Gary, it's my pleasure to be here and to be on this network to participate in an event of this sort. Uh, I am Canadian. I grew up on the east coast of Canada in a town that was probably not any smaller or bigger than Liberty, Texas. Uh, I decided early in my career, in fact, back in I think I made the decision in 1970 when I was working in the field on a copper project in Newfoundland, Canada, to become a geophysicist. I went to grad school and worked my way west and ended up in Calgary, but in the mining business, strangely enough, working for Shell Canada, who had a mining division at the time. And I worked in the, for Shell in the mining end of things for about five years, and then they got out of that business and transitioned me to become an oil and gas geophysicist. I have to say that um, the mining division in Shell Canada was sort of small, entrepreneurial, 50 people, responsibility and authority vested at the same level. And when I went into the oil and gas side, uh, I was part of a big organization. I would tell my wife that I felt I could go out and press my hands on the wall of the 30-story building we were in and have just as much effect on the profitability and the forward direction of the company as I could doing my job every day. So I, I left Shell, um, jumped out that window into the dark to find out I was on the first floor, ended up with a geophysical contractor um, that had a, its head office in Houston. And after a year and a half in Calgary, they offered me the chance to come to Houston. I told my wife it'd be a three-year tour we moved here in 86, so that's a lot more than three years. In fact, it's more than 30 just, now. Just add a zero. And, <laughs> yeah, just add a zero. And uh, I, have, um, I have two boys who were born in Canada but have seen the light and married Texas girls, and I now have four Texas grandchildren, so I am here for the duration. Although I must say I still return to the East Coast 
when it gets real hot in Houston so that I can kind of uh, suffer some cool weather. I, I mentioned that I went to a geophysical contractor. Even that contractor was a little bit large for me, and they offered me a chance to start up in the late 80s to start up a division, a new division for them that moved downstream of doing exploration seismic into finding oil and gas. We built that company, sold it to Landmark Graphics, who were the leading workstation, 3D workstation company at the time. Uh, we became kind of their wet lab and then eventually did a leverage buyout of that company from Landmark, three of us did a leverage buyout from Landmark and turned, took our expertise and turned it into an oil company. Sounded like a smart thing to do and it worked pretty well. We took the company public in 96 and we're on a pretty good roll until the oil business crashed yet again in 1999, 2000. Mm -hmm. Couldn't raise any money to drill wells. All the money was going to the dot-coms. So uh, that we sold out of the oil company. I fiddled around a little bit with a, a human-scale immersive visualization company that was popular around the turn of the century and also got involved with a pattern recognition, an early application of machine learning. Uh, an algorithm that had grown out of the Human Genome Project to be, we were applying it as an automatic interpretation tool for seismic. And that was going to be a slow haul when I got the opportunity to found MicroSeismic. I ran into a professor who had been a uh, world-class seismologist. He had some intellectual property that he wanted to monetize to support his retirement. We made a deal. I bought his IP for stock in a new company, which we named MicroSeismic. We went out and raised some venture capital and went on from there. So it's, it's, it's been a wild ride through the shale gale, um, but we're still in business and we've made it through yet another oil and gas collapse in the 20, 2020 period to come out on the other side with some of the new applications we're going to talk about later in this broadcast. That is very exciting. Thank you for both of your introductions. And you see this this pattern weaving together for Peter coming from from a mining company transitioning, really mining company transitioning into a oil company all within the same umbrella. And then with Gary really making several major changes. I want to get a perspective, Gary, from you just to start because you've gone through so many different iterations of of a career how did you and why did you end up transitioning from let's call it largely tech into now what we're calling largely energy sure thanks joe well part of it has been proximity um being close to houston um but you know I, when, when I when I kind of look back, I should have been in oil and gas, right? So like I mentioned, I grew up in Liberty, very much an oil and gas town. When I was a kid there in the 80s, National Pipe and Tube was there. Uh, my dad had his own services company, Hargraves Tubular, in the 80s uh, for for kind of a hot minute in between the, the ups and downs of the 80s. All my uncles and cousins and my whole extended family, they were in oil and gas. However... You know, being kind of a Gen Xer growing up with the rise of video game consoles and, and PCs, I had I had an affinity for computers 
and and not you know not not being so out outdoors and in, in in the oil patch kind of thing um so that you know that's why i went to a&m which is known for its petroleum engineering and i had some friends in in, in that part of the school that i followed there um however you know i i just i kind of had a little bit of a of, of different path right and i think for for you know i don't want to speak on behalf of peter but i know i know for me to transition into this role and these roles I'm in for micro seismic, I had to demonstrate a a a a uh, pattern of transition throughout my career, right? So I went to A&M, then I joined the Marine Corps, and while I was there, I learned how to be a mechanic. Other than fixing my bike, I'd never picked up a wrench really to do anything, right? So I had to kind of figure out what what that was all about and how to be a Marine and 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 whatnot, and how to how to how to live a civilian life, you know, most of the time, and then and then put on the Eagle Globe and anchor and and to be able to to go and and walk in those boots, right? Uh, and then when I entered uh, my professional career, I started off as a developer and a coder. And for the first three years, it was every three months, a new project. Mm-hmm. So I worked for telcos and I worked, I worked, I worked for the Boy Scouts of America and a project there and, and all these, you know, various companies and organizations. And then after those three years, I was fortunate enough to join on a, what we would call in this day and age, a digital transformation, right? Mm-hmm. So three years of, of taking a company and it was a uh, 7-Eleven, Taking them from uh, chip and hardware, complete transformation of how they run their business from a data perspective, the reports, all the KPIs in that organization and and, and really transforming uh, that. And I did that in a project and program management capacity, right? So So I changed roles. Uh, there, and I started that in kind of a junior role, obviously. But when that project was over, I I had ended that project as the delivery manager, and the client, you know, f- liked me as as so much that they hired me full time, right? So I went to work there, and that was the first time I'd worked in an industry directly for a company, you know, of that size and, and whatnot, right? But that didn't last too long because. You know, when my wife and I were there, we looked around and we were having a great time as as two double income, you know, married couple. But then we had our first kid, and as we looked around, there was no family, so we we decided to make a transition there, right? So I I moved to Austin and I I left 7-Eleven, and then they actually hired me back through a management consulting company, tech services company, and I ran the same project, but I worked remotely from home for six years. So, you know, if you think about what the world has gone through over the past few years and COVID and, and everybody, you know, being forced to, to, to work out of their homes, I kind of wrote the book on that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and over those six years, we had three kids and, and I, you know, I, I learned how to, how, to, how to transition that work-life balance, what that really meant. Uh, and then after a period of time, right, I realized that you you can't really grow your career and and you know at least at the at the way that I wanted to grow it and by by working from home like that exclusively. So then I took yet another transition in my career and I and I and I went into a quota carrying sales role. And I and I literally you know beat the streets and toured half of the United States. I had Chicago and Philadelphia and New York and Houston and whatnot and all those the industries that I kind of kind of mentioned in that first ten years, and and then I, I transitioned to another company and and got in more to working with oil and gas and mining and industrial uh, type organizations 
and all that was more in a in a managing consulting role where I was building my time and I was working with project teams and I was managing a PNL and I was selling and solutioning you know these digital solutions right so I just I continuously transitioned you know my career in those roles over time and then finally you know kind of like I said you know, I I met Peter at at the, at, at the energy and data conference here in Austin, proximity again kind of reared its head, right? Um, I went to that, and and you know we kind of figured out we, we, this was going to be something that was going to work work for the company, right? And and be a good fit for both for me and my my professional uh, development, but really for the company looking for somebody that had some experience working with solutions, digital solutions and technologies and capabilities, you know, within oil and gas and seeing how those applied. I spent a lot of time with IoT solutions and while I was at IBM, we fleshed out really what blockchain was going to be for the industry and and help kind of seed the 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 consortia that's out there today for 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 energy. Um, and and really kind of, you know, continually transitioned and and work with those technologies uh, and solutions. And, and, you know, walking in here with that experience, you know, it's my role to, to blend my exposure to all of the companies that I've worked with over time and, and, and help take the experience that we have here at MicroSeismic. The people here, you know, our field leaders have walked thousands and thousands of miles or traveled thousands and thousands of miles across, you know, Canada and the United States. And, you know, in my consulting career, I found myself whiteboarding what a digital oil field would look like with super majors and with other oil field services companies and with independents. And lo and behold, microseismic is the definition of digital oil field. You know, I I was fortunate enough to, to walk into a company that is a leader in data acquisition from the field using IoT technologies and solutions and processing and, you know, acquiring that data and processing that data, right? So now, you know, what we're looking at is how do you take that experience and repurpose that technology, that capability into these new energy solutions and environmental services solutions that, you know, the world really needs right now. That's a very cool and and what i hear you saying with that is that you kept changing and transitioning into these different roles and different positions essentially looking for that next challenge and looking for ways to grow and advance not only your personal career but also advancing the the industry that you're in and kind of advancing society forward it's very exciting to hear and i think that's that's a inspiring and encouraging thought as we look at energy and the role energy has to play in the future and especially the role of the energy transition. So now getting into micro seismic, I want to just start with laying a groundwork here and and Peter as the expert, I'm going to ask you a very simple question. What exactly is micro seismic data? Great. Thank you, Joe. So, microseismic as a technology is, is a subset of what we would typically call, or we will call, we do call, passive seismic. 
Passive seismic is to conventional seismic as a stethoscope is to an ultrasound. You know in an ultrasound, you send a signal down, it bounces off the baby or your heart or your kidney or whatever, and the technician creates an image. In the oil, in the oil field, in conventional seismic, we use dynamite or vibrators or air guns and we send a signal into the earth, we capture the reflections and we make an image. With microseismic or with passive seismic, we don't use any artificial sources. We simply put out receivers on the surface, near the surface, or perhaps down close to the reservoir, and we record the squishy sounds that come out of the earth. Now, the, the classical application of passive seismic is uh, imaging the interior of the earth using earthquakes as the source. So all of those images you've seen that show the mantle and the liquid outer core and the solid inner core of the earth have been derived by measuring the time it takes earthquake signals to transit the entire earth and inverting those into an image of the earth. Well, at Microseismic Inc., what we did was take that technology and re-engineer it, scale it down to the scale of an oil field so that we could apply this listening this listening technology to solving the kinds of problems that you have in the oil field, whether it's uh, uh, wellbore shear or the advancement of fluids in production or whatever. But fundamentally, microseismic data is just a stethoscope on the chest of the reservoir listening to the sounds that are emitted when we interact with it. Mm. So this is a question for both of you. Love the medical analogy. And sticking with that, over the course of the past 20 years, there have been great advancements in medical imaging technology and, and technology in general. What, in terms of data collection or monitoring ability or resolution, what kind of changes have occurred associated with microseismic? You bet. I'm going to start off on this then. Gary can kick in if he's got something to add. The, the concept of applying microseismic to oil field problems actually started back in the 90s, maybe even in the late 80s. But at that time, when the geophysicists put out their geophones on the surface of the Earth to listen to the very, very small sounds that emit from the oil field at reservoir depths, uh, they couldn't hear anything. Now, these sounds are small. I'll give you an idea. The typical pop that we hear when you frack a well is equivalent to the sound that's made when you take a can of Coke and drop it from your waist onto a cement floor. That thud is a magnitude minus two earthquake, if you like, and we regularly detect that thud from the surface when the, when the uh, depth that it occurred is 10, 12, 14,000 feet. So in the beginning, they had to put the microphone down close to that thud in order to hear it. But as the technology developed, and particularly the technology that Microseismic Inc. brought to the field, what we did was build a dish microphone on the surface of the earth. And much like if you go to a sports game and the guys on the sideline want to hear what the ref called before they had lavalier mics, 
they would point a dish microphone at the ref. If they just held up a microphone on the sideline, all they hear was the crowd. But if they pointed a dish microphone, they could hear what the ref said. Well, that's what we do. We build a dish microphone on the surface of the earth, and we point it towards the sounds, the target, and that dish microphone, act, acting like a dish microphone or acting like one of the your um, uh, radio telescope arrays, can pick up those small sounds. So that allowed us to get away from going down hole in most cases, which was great because engineers don't like to drill wells to put fancy geophysical tools down. They want to drill a well to produce oil and gas, and I don't blame them. <laughs> and there's a risk when you put stuff down of a scientific nature that you get stuck in there and lose the well and that. So going from the surface was an immediate logistical advantage to microseismic. Now, when we began collecting the data, the principal deliverable was the X, Y, Z, and time that the event occurred. And that was about all you could get from the downhole measurements. So we would, we would create these images that were little dots that represented where we heard the sound coming off from a frack. And we would sometimes animate these so that you could make an image that showed where the frack was going. Now, I, and I have to say, when we first got into the business, we thought of doing all sorts of things like I mentioned, induced seismicity due to injections or production. But when the shale gale hit in 2005, Katie barred the door. The only thing we were doing was frack monitoring. Hmm. And what we were delivering were these dots in the box, sometimes movies, that showed how the frack grew. Now, I have to tell you, it was a fabulous revelation to the engineers, the, just these dots in the box, because up until that point, the models they were using for how the rocks fracked were wrong. And they were making assumptions about how the wells fracked that were wrong, and couldn't, they couldn't understand why the wells weren't producing as they expected. The rocks were not behaving as their simplistic models said they should. Microseismic showed them how these rocks were behaving just in these little animations. But I'll tell you, the first time I saw one of these animations, I was at a client, actually a guy that I drilled some wells with out of Midland, Texas. And he, he, I asked him, have you ever done any of this frack monitoring? And he said, yes, I've got a CD right here. And he put it in, and I saw for the first time one of these dots-in-the-box movies of a frack, and I was just blown away as a scientist. And I said, Larry, this is fantastic. What did, what did you do with it? And he said, well, the first thing I did is I took it to my board, and I showed them, and they were blown away. And I said, great, are you going to do another? And he said, why? I've got the CD here. Why would I need another? <laughs> now I know how fracks work. Well, in, you ask how things improved. We, over the years, took that limited value dots in the box, even when it was a movie, and we started to figure out the mechanisms of those sounds that whether the rocks broke as strike slip or dip slip, how big the fracks were, and we started to make detailed geological models. That wasn't good enough yet. The value wasn't there yet. 
we took those geological models and upscaled them to permeability enhancement models so that they and then plugged them into reservoir simulators so we could start to predict how different fracks and different frac effects would affect the production in the wells even that wasn't good enough what we did beyond that and when i say we i mean microseismic ink but also our entire community i don't want to be too egotistical here we 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 actually started to say okay we want to show you how to make a better frack how do you judge better and at the end of the day better we all realized was return on investment it wasn't put more sand into the well but if you don't get enough oil out for that extra sand to pay for the sand then that's not a good thing that's not better you might get more production but would it pay for the extra effort so we actually as a community took our frack monitoring product from dots in the box and fancy movies all the way to an estimate of whether or not completing that well for another hour would produce a positive return on investment mm. and we were just to that point in 2019 when all hell broke loose and oil headed towards a negative cost and covid broke out and and the whole fracking industry and the frack monitoring industry with it started to collapse mm. but it was a tremendous i i i have to say one of the the most enthralling developments of technology from where we were in 1995 to where we ended up in 2019 yeah yeah and i would add so i mean i haven't been here obviously over the 20 years to to see the specific change in in microseismics capabilities but what i do know is that you know taking what microseismic has been able to do and transform its business over that time it's really really critical to kind of where we're headed right in the future but with respect to the data and the technology the surrounding technology has um has changed to enable the ability to process the data and to analyze that data you know more efficient uh, in some cases cheaper right uh, we look at we have ai capabilities and technologies that we've brought in to to help with the analysis uh, the way data gets acquired in the field um, has changed over time what hasn't changed and where the experience comes in from what i see is you still have to deal with landowners you have to get, understand the permitting process you got to know you know where where you can and can't go and how to deal with the operators right and that's where you know i'm i'm looking at this company and and as i've gone and been able to meet with the the, the people that have worked here for 10 15 years or so i i've seen a real um difference in a in ability to to kind of make sure those operations are are going to go as smooth as possible right it's it's uh it's been a a really pleasant experience getting to know the people that work here great yeah, I think that's an important part that the people ultimately are adding in and making the culture of the business and that that desire and that drive to continue pushing forward. And I think it's important to highlight here that that 
microseismic is this vital component in unconventionals. And I think I think you highlighted that well, Peter, with the fact that you were you're showing essentially you can use the microseismic to say, is this well or are these operations better or worse on that ROI? And that's kind of where you've been driving this 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 ship, so to speak. But now we're in this this new realm with the energy transition, and I'm aware that there are other potential opportunities for for growth of of where you where and how you utilize microseismic data. For for the audience, what are some of those areas where where y'all are working and where you see application for microseismic data collection? So thanks, Joe. I'll take that one to start here. Uh, you know, I've, at first, I'd, I'd kind of like just to talk about energy transition and what that really means, right? Uh, I mean, a lot of what we're seeing today is being driven by, you know, world governments and industries uh, accepting climate change. Um, and you know, one of the issues that's at hand right now, and, and it was a really big topic at the latest COP convention is the developed countries working with the less developed countries to either change their transition and and how you know how how they're moving their energy solutions and capabilities or slow it down or you know divert them to renewables and less dependent on uh, hydrocarbons and fossil fuels Uh, the reality is that there's still some two billion people out there that 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 need reliable, secure energy to cook their foods and heat their homes, right? So just let's t- let's set aside the moment EVs and and the movement to electrification of cars, let and focus on just the basic human, you know, survival, right? And we've got a lot of people around the world that need secure and reliable energy for those two things, heating their homes uh, and cooking their food. So we believe that hydrocarbons, the fossil fuel industry is going to be around for a long time because of those reasons. Um, the you know wind and solar have have gotten the most investments out of the renewables and 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 have a lot of the uh, you know, I guess the press is one way to say it, right? Uh, but when you talk about reliable energy, when you go to turn your lights on, or you go to turn your stove on, or you have the the ability to to cook and walk away, wind and solar aren't quite there as far as being reliable as natural gas for electricity, right? Or you know, oil and, and various butane and propane and whatnot to, to cook your food foods. So we think our, our our traditional HMF, our fracking line of business is going to be here to stay. Um, and we you know we're 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 confident in that. Um, we think frack driven interactions is is going to be something our clients are going to be interested in understanding. We think that with the the evolution of private equity making more and more investments into this industry 
they they don't quite have the capacity to understand the assets they're buying, say a super major would, right? So we're seeing in that in the in the fracking business and the capability that we provide, the actual valuation of those assets. We're we're able to help with the the integrity um, and the valuation of those assets. So so that we think that business is gonna is gonna be here um, to stay, right? And then you know back to kind of the the energy transition and that that climate change. So the other areas that we're focused on, right? Uh, there's a lot of um, different types of climate change going on. Uh, two of the ones that that you know we're kind of focused on is, and it comes in environmental services is uh, flooding from f- severe storms. You know we see that in Houston, right, um, and all along uh, the coast. Um, and, uh, you know, um, these massive storms that are coming in, what, what we know and have come to understand, 20% of the world has a karst-like geography. And what karsting brings out is sinkholes. So when you have these severe weather events and then you have rising sea levels along coastlines where the majority of the world lives, you have sinkholes that are starting to come up. The state of New York, for example, this year have had over 3,000 sinkhole events. It's an almost 40% increase over last year. If you look down south in Chile, there was a large sinkhole that opened up and shut down a mining operation, right? Millions of dollars worth of business that have come to a halt. And the, the, the material and the elements that are coming out of those mines are critical to the new solutions that the, the market and the world's looking for, right? All the elements that go into batteries. Um, and this, in Florida, where we have operations, um, it's you know it's it, that the whole state is like a giant sponge, and every time a hurricane passes over, there's sinkhole events right that rise up. So so we've been able to help um, a client in the area maintain their operations by predicting when a sinkhole event is going to occur, and we call that our cursed alert solution. So so same technology that we used in the past to build out these buried arrays. We can we can surround an asset, right, and help identify where a sinkhole event is going to occur. And we and, you know, and we're looking at things like nuclear reactors and facilities and waste management and and, and Superfund sites and uh, you know new critical infrastructure hospitals and, and and airports and things like that. Right. We think there's going to be a market there as we go forward. Uh, so that's kind of you know that that that's one. And then I know you have a passion for geothermal yourself we're a big believer in geothermal and 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 the outlook of that market uh, there's a lot of validation out there right now rice state energy has said there's going to be some 10,000 wells drilled over the next i think 10 years or so right so we and there's hot rocks all over the world it's a it's a it's a great renewable source of energy and we believe the same technology that you use for geothermal stimulation that we use for frack monitoring or, or you know fracking is going to be applied um, in that industry as well so, so we're looking to, to pivot and, and, and grow our, our, uh, our business in that area. And then, you know, kind of the last big focus for us right now is carbon, 
right? The sequestration of carbon and storage uh, and the monitoring of, of that carbon in the ground. Um, those are kind of, you know, where we're headed right now. Peter, did you want or have anything to add into there? No, I think, I think Gary's got to, uh, maybe I'll say one thing. It's interesting how the world goes in circles. And the very, very first project that we did as MicroSeismic Inc. was in fact a CO2 sequestration monitoring project, an EOR project, up in Wyoming. And that, that was where we had the first opportunity to go in the field, collect data, and listen to MicroSeismic events to try to track the CO2. And then the shale gale came along, and it was like drinking out of a fire hose, and it's only with the um, the current or the hiatus that hit us in 2020 in the oil and gas business that we had the bandwidth to start to look for these other opportunities mm -hmm. which has been a marvelous blessing because we used to be a one-trick pony and now we've got four areas of business that we can apply our technology very cool and that is that is interesting how you see that circular kind of everything coming back full circle I want to stay on that topic of CCS and carbon sequestration, really to talk about one large, large idea that being a kind of full life cycle field array, because as we know with CCS, the whole idea is to store that carbon permanently in the ground. But in order to know that it's there permanently for, say, for our lifetime, 100 years, let's say, you do need to actually monitor that and make sure there's no leakage, whether that's through a fault, whether that's a seal breaking, whether that's through existing wells that have that have penetrated that reservoir. Where does micro seismic, and I've got my own ideas, but I want I want to hear what you have to say. Where does micro seismic fall into this idea of permanent monitoring and verification of long-term permanent sequestration sure I, I'll, I'll take that one then Joe um, so I, I told you earlier that when we first went to the field to do micro seismic monitoring of fracks we had this dish microphone that we put out on the ground and it was it rather looked like a 3d seismic crew we would put out several thousand geophones on the surface in a particular pattern over the well that was being treated. And it, it involved having a crew of 20 people who would lay out the geophones and the wires on the surface. And then at the end of the, the, end of the job, the two weeks or the month that it took to frack the well, we'd pick it all up. So it was a, a temporary placement. But it became, the, when an operator would go into a field with the idea of monitoring a large number of wells, it soon became cost prohibitive to be continually laying out ground, cables on the ground and then picking them up. Not only was it cost prohibitive, but it was also an impediment. Uh, they're moving trucks and vehicles around and cables would get caught up and, and animals would chew on them. And so we came up, really, during the development of the Haynesville play, we came up with the idea of doing this permanent life of field buried array, where we would put the stations buried below the surface of the ground, 
by oh three four hundred feet, and at the at each station we would put an antenna that would transmit the data back to our central processing center. And so instead of having thousands of stations on the ground, I guess the average would have been about a hundred geophones in every square mile. We could get away with two or three stations, huh. and these two or three stations would simply be and then from, from the point of view of someone on the surface, they just look like a flagpole with a box on the side and an antenna on the top. And during the development of the Haynesville, there, what, in the first six months of 2010, we actually installed 18 of these buried arrays in the Haynesville play because the operators then felt that they needed to be monitoring a large number of their wells while they were developing the play. Uh, it was also wet down in Louisiana, and so putting in the buried array was a lot cheaper than putting uh, phones out on the ground. Well, we've continued with that, and, and in when we've worked with operators who've wanted to monitor their field and the completions over the life of the field, we've continued to put in these permanent life of field buried arrays. So the first one we put in is in 2008, and that one is still operating, not continually continuously, but every time they want to frack another well. So when, you're quite right, when you move from doing frack monitoring, which might be sort of uh, on and off again when you're fracking another well, when you're doing something like CO2 monitoring, where you're interested in, I guess, three things come to mind, the, the, the potential for the in, for inducing seismicity that could be felt at the surface and might damage surface infrastructure or could um, get in the way of the neighborhood, you know, cause some problems with your, with your social license to practice. Or if there is seismicity maybe at a smaller level that could damage the cap rock allowing leaks to come through the surface. Or just to track the plume. All of that, as you say, you're going to want to do from the day you start injecting, through when you've completed injection, and then onward, I think the government actually requires that you monitor for at least 25 years after you've stopped injecting. So now, the idea of putting out a buried array where all of the, all of the good stuff is below the surface of the ground and all there is is a flagpole with an antenna so that you're not getting in the way of, of equipment that's operating in the field, and so that you're not causing an eyesore or an impediment to the farmers in, in, in their out, that becomes the perfect tool. And, and it's actually true for um, this karst alert or the sinkhole monitoring that Gary talked about as well, because when someone puts in a nuclear power plant or a hospital or an industrial facility, they want to monitor it for the life of that facility. So once again, we're in the business of taking a buried array and putting it out for the life of that facility. So those are kind of the, that length of application is, is the biggest difference between what we were doing in frack monitoring, which was kind of intermittent, and these other applications. And in these other applications, we actually have to monitor 24-7 in real time we have an alarm system such that we're watching it all the time. We have a, an, a machine learning based algorithm 
that looks at the data as it's coming in, uh, we have about a 10 minute lag. And if we start to see events that follow a certain pattern, we raise our hand, we tell the client that there is something going on that they need to be aware of and they can, they can alter their activities at the place to mitigate the risk. In a karst alert situation, they can drill into the karst and fill it with cement. In the CO2 sequestration situation, they can tamp down or reduce their rate of injection to reduce the risk of induced seismicity, or we can locate the leak for them and they can go grout it off. So it's a beautiful business model because instead of being something that's kind of hurry up and wait and projects have a two month lifetime, it's now projects that are decades long. Yep. Yeah, that's, it seems like. I, I will say one other thing because we were talking about differences. Every one of these projects, even when we were doing frac monitoring, there's differences in the geology, differences in the surface condition. So we usually have to go in and do a little modeling and redesign. We're still a stethoscope. We're still listening for sounds that are the same size, that thud, but we might have to build a different shaped antenna to accommodate the surface location and the particularities, the particularities of the geology in that location. Okay. Yeah, and I think it's it's very interesting to hear that that aspect. And as we look at these long term, talk about sustainability, circular economy, and all of those different aspects. And now thinking about how do we how do we make all of our infrastructure safer, more resilient? How do we have these long term um, these long term pieces of hardware equipment or carbon sequestration and as you were talking with the antennas pinging all of the data back to a central source I correct me if I'm wrong but I would think 20 years ago that would have been either technologically prohibitive or cost prohibitive to even have say five or ten of these buried arrays or buried geophones sending information back to one location. So I think Gary can talk to that about the technologies we're using today. That falls right square in his in his sweet spot. Yeah, but, but before we get to technologies, I, I also want to just... <laughs> I'm going back to the energy transition. You know, we talk a lot about moving from one type of energy to another uh, and what that means with the molecules, right? And the, and the electricity and whatnot. But I think what's also important about what we're doing right now with these new solutions is that we're transitioning people as well. And that's really, really important because when you look at at, and, and I'm a good example. As you transition your career over time, you have to kind of look at what's next, right? And in this case, for carbon storage and where it's actually going to be stored, in a lot of cases, especially where it's going to be transported, right, where they're going to build new uh, critical infrastructure and pipes and whatnot, 
you know, the oil and gas industry and the engineers and the geologists and the geophysicists have been walking around on, on these lands for 150 years, right? And as we transition over, it's really important that we, we you know, we allow for the people in this industry to, to have that professional transition as well. And we're providing that, right? These new, again, we're, we're using the same buried array capabilities, you know, with micro seismic technology for these new solutions that we're talking 25 year type solutions, yep. right? So it's a really, it's a really important thing that we're doing here. Um, and so we, we've had some validation, right? We, we recently designed an array and, and what a solution would look like for the Department of Energy. We, we won one of the you know grants earlier in the year and, and we showed what that would be. And, and some of the feedback that we've heard is, you know, this is, this is what, this is with, with the investments that the government is making in this space, what they're looking for is, you know, how can we take existing technology and repurpose it, but also how can we take the people that are out there keeping this country going how do we how do we repurpose their skills along with it right so i think it's i think i, I just don't want to i don't you know technology is great but the people are what really matter here in the experience and and allowing for them to be able to transition is is just critical right mm-hmm. yeah 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 well and and as yeah and as far as i mean the the capabilities and the technology that, that we have right now you know again we the the IoT technology is 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 part. Uh, I, I keep going on the experience. It's real easy to design a, a an IoT network for an area of the country. Uh, you know, until you're out there and you realize that you you got to make sure that you've got a tower on one hill versus the other kind of thing, right? Uh, you know, geography matters, and 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 where where you are in the world matters. Uh, so, so that that experience really comes in, comes into play. The the, the type of IoT um, tower system that you're going to build and stand up. Uh, I think it's 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 really nice that MicroSeismic has been in the renewal business for quite some time because the way we power our IoT devices and acquire that data is you know by enabling it with a little wind turbine or a solar panel. So we've been in the renewal business for for quite some time and using that technology probably before you know anybody even knew what 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 they were really doing out there right uh so uh, i i think that's a really great thing about this company just how innovation innovative it has been over the time and and and, you know we're already green (laughs) well that is it's always fun to to hear that and exciting to think about ways seeing seeing your story and and micro seismic story in how how the company has has gone through the past 20 years through these transitions with peter at the helm gary bringing you on and seeing the your transitions and how that almost mirrors some of these different aspects with that i want to 
to a transition here into those final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. That first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Uh, Peter, let's have you go first on this one, if you're ready with a book. You bet. So keeping, and and I didn't plan it this way, but keeping with the idea of transitions, uh, I think one of the most uh, fantastic books that I've read in the last five years is uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, and where he talks about how over the history of mankind, they've had to uh, react to, to transition to the changes in their particular environment, a lot different environment than we're seeing now. But it really reading that, it, it puts into context the entire history of the human race and why some people developed and some people didn't. And I think it gives you a good sort of um, primer uh, or primer, if you're English, as to how one needs to go forward. It's a good one. It is on my bookshelf, but unfortunately not read yet. Well, get to it. It's <laughs> worth the time. All right. Gary, what about you? That's a great one. Well, I've got a long list, uh, but the one I'm reading right now is called iGen, little letter iGen. Uh, it's by Dr. Gene Twenge, and it's the first major study that has come out to understand kids that were born, you know, after, say, 2005. Right. So I'm reading it, one, because I'm a dad of three teenagers and I'm constantly trying to figure out how to stay one step ahead of them. Um, But the other is, you know, there's a whole entire workforce that's going to enter and starting to enter right into industry. And and as leaders, we have to be able to understand and empathize and and figure out how we're all going to work together because they're different. They're the first they're the first humans in the history of the world that have had a device in their hands from almost birth, mm-hmm. right? And the way it's changed their thinking and how they interact, um, it's it's just, it's phenomenal and in, in, in kind of where we're at, right? So, you know, you look at trends that are going on right now, large companies right now are now looking at taking people in that didn't go to college Right, which they wouldn't have done traditionally. Um, I was trying to figure out why in the world my daughter was so lackadaisical in obtaining her driver's license. Well, it turns out it's a trend amongst all of her peers because they're so digitally connected, and and you know all the time that that they just don't feel like they need to get out. It's just so it, it's going to change the way people work and the change the way we have to respond to them. So I highly recommend that right now for even if you're not a parent, just understanding what the workforce is going to be in, you know, five to 10 years kind of thing. That is, that sounds fascinating. And I have, I have one son at home. He's only four and a half. So I've got a while, but I can definitely see the the difference in mindset or the difference in his mannerisms depending on the day. And most often I can correlate that to how much time has he spent on his tablet in the morning. So it is fascinating to think about and see those those um, the correlations that you can have just from a peer group of one observation or study group of one observation, but then knowing that there's 
there are these larger studies that, that really point to some of this stuff and have actionable insights. So the next question I've got is, when will we be net zero as a society? And Gary, let's have you start on this one. I think that is to be determined, right? I mean, if you look at kind of large global institutions and uh, maybe developed countries that are leading this, 2050 is is kind of the big goal that they have in place. Uh, there, are, there are other countries and uh, and companies that are more aggressive and and have said 2030 uh, is their goal right I, I will say for the you know pat the US on on the back we are one of the largest contributors but when we changed our energy from coal to natural gas we had a huge right yeah. reduction in in our own emissions and and help accelerate that 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 plan the challenge is going to be again those two billion people where where they don't have the infrastructure developed right now and they don't have reliable energy to you know again light their homes and cook their fuel um, finding the balance of, of 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 helping them obtain that energy source versus you know the world meeting a net zero goal is is i think we still got to figure that out right Mm -hmm. as a society yeah yeah peter what about you what do you think so uh if you say if you mean globally as a society i think the answer that i would like to say is never never short of there being some technological development uh that doesn't exist currently I don't think that with solar panels or windmills, we will get to net zero. Uh, Maybe if I don't say never, I should say 100 years. I think 2030, 2050, that's a pipe dream. Um, Short of cold fusion, or maybe, maybe, if I had one, one technology that I think is emerging that has the opportunity is to use that huge nuclear power plant that exists below our feet geothermal and and short of that really taking off and us figuring out how to do it economically i don't think we'll get to net zero as a globe yep yeah it is a it is a daunting task and that is one of those things that the reason I asked the question is to make people think about it. Like, what does it actually take for society to get to net zero? And the, there's always two answers. It's either very optimistic about human ingenuity. Well, I guess there's more than two answers, but typically fall along the lines of human ingenuity and optimism or the fact that there there is this very difficult challenge and I'm going to focus on on doing what I can, but ultimately there are too many factors at play that I don't control, and I don't think that that we will ever get a handle of all of them. So it's it is interesting to think about, but ultimately I by asking that question I have definitely become more optimistic on on the idea in general. So now the last question is actually you you two get to ask me a question now so 
for either one of you, if you're ready, fire away. Yeah, Joe, I would be interested in, in knowing, you know, knowing your background, your point of view on geothermal and, and kind of our thinking as well, or, you know, do you, how do you think it stacks up with the other renewables and, and where it's going in the world? Well, so I, I will answer this as simply and as, as holistically as possible. I think, and I'm more making this realization more recently, the, the subsurface, it has been the, the kitchen for, and the generator of all of our hydrocarbons. It is the, the source of the heat that we can get geothermal from. It is the storage mechanism where we can store excess power and it will be the storage mechanism to put a significant amount of CO2 that, that is in the atmosphere and sequester it, kind of jumping over a few steps in that, that long-term carbon cycle. So I, I really think the subsurface as a whole is both the problem, solution, answer, and and almost the the bottleneck for energy and society. Geothermal, I think, is a key component to that because we can cover low temperature heating and cooling for houses, long-term, ultra-long-term energy storage, and also base load power generation. And right now we've got 15 gigawatts of power on on the worldwide energy grid but i do think that that can get ramped up significantly as we talk about building more traditional hydrothermal geothermal power plants and also getting into things like egs super hot rock and using some of the energy storage and low temperature energy technologies Cool. So now it's my turn to ask you a question. Yes. <laughs> and, and I will follow Monty Python and ask something completely different. And now for something completely different. This is a lot of effort on your part. What, what is the part about doing these interviews and this program that you like the best, that you find most rewarding, that you find most interesting? Mm. I think that... What I enjoy most and what I find most interesting, right? I find all of it very interesting. So I think it would be hard. And it's it's hard because some of the comparisons are, and I always go to this, but things like wetland conservation and regenerative agriculture all the way through artificial intelligence, machine learning, automation of the oil field and of digitalization of active production. So it's it's hard to pick out one specific point that I absolutely say this is the most interesting. I think what I like most about it is one getting to talk to all of these people at the cutting edge or or out there boots on the ground doing stuff that they are passionate about 
and excited about and want to see change, where they are making that difference. And I also get excited about it because of the, I get to share this with more people. So a few weeks ago, one that's coming top of mind is Revolution Turbine Technologies. They are making a micro pressure turbine. So this this is a small like back pressure turbine that essentially takes excess pressure, lets that excess pressure be released through natural gas pipeline systems and generates electricity with it. This is only a right now they're 1 to 10 kilowatt scale which seems very small. Not everybody's going to see that and get excited. But by being able to have them on the show, I can share them with hopefully somebody who does find that, hear that, get excited about it, and somebody that they wouldn't have met otherwise. So I think that's what really excites me because all of it's really cool. And I think every single person I've had on, I think is part of the solution their voices have value and I want to share their voices, but I, there's so many different ones that it would just be so hard to see those connections be made without having a platform to have them on. So that's it. Cool. Yep. Well, Gary, Peter, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Just been my pleasure to be here. Thank you. And to share in yeah. your enthusiasm. Yeah, Joe, thanks for having us on. I really appreciate it. Um, I will say that, you know, in the in just the spirit of energy transition and what that means to the world right now. Uh, and I know as a listener of the OGGN podcast that there seems to be a younger audience out there that, that likes to listen to the podcast. Um, you know, this is the industry to be in right now, right? <laughs> to come into this industry and help lead this transition. Uh, we're, we're talking some of these projects are years long, right? Monitoring these storage and figuring out where we need to go and, and build out these new energy solutions. They're large feats of engineering that are needed here, right? So the type of projects that are going to happen over the next 10, 20, 30 years are just going to be phenomenal. And even when you look at climate change and what it means to the world and the impact in, that it's having, again, large feats of engineering are going to be required. And, and in order for those engineering <laughs> projects to happen and for the types of solutions and energy we're talking about, we need geophysicists, we need geologists, we need the, the types of people that have been working in the oil and gas industry for the past 150 years. We need people that are young and energetic to come in and help lead this transition, right? So. So here's here's my my ask to, to, to any of those young listeners right now is you know take take this transition serious and if you really want to be a part of it come come put your hands on them right and 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 let's run this run this down together kind of thing. Yep, absolutely. Thank you for making that point that 
the energy transition, it is real. The energy and industry is going to be here to stay. And a lot of that that push and that effort and and where the technology and innovation and and really doing the work is all going to come out of this energy industry. We can't do it without without the next generation, the uh, the iGen that you mentioned earlier and and just get excited. So thank you again, Peter and Gary, for joining me on the show today. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review and tell me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. I'll have a link in the show notes. And if you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we do have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find us by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I'd like you to fill out. The link is also in the show notes. Please go fill that out. And if you do, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.